Good morning, everyone. Um, So we're going to read 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Thanks, Heather. Now you come to church, you preach, but you do not expect to get egged by the pastor. That happens. Good morning, let me add my welcome to others. It's fantastic to see you. Um, This is our third week in the book of 1 John. Uh, I hope some of you had a chance to look at 1 John on your own and read it. There's lots in there, even the passage today. You see there's probably some questions that might come up for you. And we've been kind of doing an overview and looking at John as best we can and going to punch down to some of the details. If you have questions from that passage that don't get answered today, um, we don't have a question and answer time in church at the moment, but come and talk to me afterwards. And that'd be fantastic. Uh, I want to just pray before we start. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you. All of your word is useful for us. It enlightens our hearts and our eyes and our minds to your salvation. Help us to trust it. And we pray that your spirit will be at work in us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. 
Let's jump in. So what have we looked at in the book of 1 John so far? Let's kind of get our heads back into that. We said that the purpose of 1 John was to reassure believers that they have life. They have life in Jesus. They have life and inclusion in his family if they believe his word, if they obey it and they walk in truth and love. And John does this in the context of false teachers, those who had come up from within the church who were threatening the truth about Jesus, who were proclaiming a false gospel. So in our week one, we said the action item was to do hold on to two things. One was to hold on to the fact that we need to take sin seriously in our lives. That sin gets in the way of fellowship. And we said that we're to uh, hold on to the fact that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. We have forgiveness in Him. And these things come together in confession. When we come before God asking for forgiveness, relying on Him for it, acknowledging our sin, bringing it into the light. That was week one. Last week we looked predominantly at chapter 3 of 1 John uh, and we saw that there are three tests in the book of 1 John. Tests to work out, well, who are the false teachers or the antichrists and who are the children of God? Uh, The three tests are, test one, the moral test of obedience, test two, the social test of love, and test three, the doctrinal test of truth about Jesus. So really it's righteousness or behavior, love and truth. Righteousness, love, and truth. And we looked at the first two tests last week. We're going to pick up the first, the third one today. So let's recap then. What's the moral test that John gives us? That's to do with our righteousness. Who are the children of God? It's those who have a God-like character, like a parent with a child, where you expect to see some of the qualities of the parent in the child. We expect to see the child of God reflecting the character of God, which plays out in obedience. Those who quickly turn to God in repentance when they get it wrong. Those whose lives are orientated towards Him and His righteousness rather than towards the world and sin. That's the moral test. The social test of love. Well, this has to do with who are the people of God like? Like it was a professor, no, uh, engineer, crazy engineer Carl was saying it has to do with love. Have a self-sacrificial, Christ-like love for one another. Uh, And that's so closely connected with our love for God. God loves us, so we love others and Him. The third test, we pick that up immediately following the passage from last week, which is at the start of chapter 4. We didn't read this today. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 4, but I can't skip over this, so I'm going to read it for you now. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, the first three verses, just straight into that third test. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you recognize the Spirit of God. How? Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is in the world. So we're told to test the spirits. The doctrinal test, I think, is perhaps the easiest to apply. Who are the children of God? It's those who rightly confess the true Jesus. Those who acknowledge that Christ has come in the flesh. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And we can't do that without the right spirit of God in us. So why come in the flesh? We hear this idea a bit, Jesus and come in the flesh. We, I think it was in our prayer, of our, um, our statement of confession and in our song called the Apostles' Creed. Why does he focus on Jesus coming in the flesh? 
I think John is again writing to counter false teachers who are proposing that Jesus wasn't fully Jesus or fully human and fully God for the entirety of his ministry. It's an idea I think perhaps we're not familiar with at the moment. It's not a common um, false teaching today. Or maybe it is in a different way. But this is what it went. This is what it went. So people were saying, false teachers at the time, were attempting to separate Jesus from the Christ, the divinity and humanity of Christ. It was the view that Jesus was in fact born naturally to Mary and Joseph, perhaps in wedlock. And that at his baptism, when the Spirit descended on Jesus, he was made divine, uh, divine the Christ. And that somehow, just before his crucifixion, the divinity of Jesus left and so he separated out the Christ and the person of Jesus. It was a false teaching that undermined the truth about the Saviour who came into the world, fully God and fully man. John says, this view is not just a misunderstanding, it's not a well-meaning hiccup. In fact, behind this false view of Jesus is nothing less than the Antichrist. This is a message from the devil. John doesn't mince his words. We've seen it already. He's very strong. But here's the glorious truth for those who do confess Jesus as he is rightly portrayed in the word. Here's the glorious truth for us who confess Christ. We speak not from our own perspectives. We speak from the Spirit of God. And his Spirit lives in us His Spirit lives in us and we in Him. And 1 John 4.13, This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we also rely on the love God has for us. Can we know that we are saved? 100% we can. We can be confident. If you acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and live for Him, you are saved. You have life. This is the punch that the book of 1 John wants to deliver to believers. You can know. That confession of the right Jesus, of the true Jesus, comes from the Spirit speaking within us. So be assured, God is in you. You are in Him. You can't get any closer to God than that. I remember being in a youth group where people would say, how are you going with your faith? Do you feel close to Jesus today? Um, And you know, maybe there's some value in that, but let's not lose the theological reality that we can't get any closer to God in Christ. This is a solid, rely on his love. Okay, so that's the three tests in 1 John. Um, Moral, social, doctrinal, or righteousness, love, and truth. And John swirls around these three tests in in multiple ways and looks at them in different angles throughout the book. Uh, That's at the heart of the book. And John does it. um, And he does it in a way that uh, he kind of outlines each of the three tests and then connects them together. It kind of brings us to the start of 1 John chapter 5. Three tests intimately linked. Uh, John Stott, I've been using as a commentary in this series, as I've been preparing, John Stott says that the three tests are actually chained together. Let's have a look at this. Uh, I need three volunteers very quickly. You don't have to do anything. You won't have to say anything. Thank you. Chris, Heather, Kim, up you come. I really appreciate your volunteering today. I was worried it would take a long time. Could you grab, grab one of these each? And we're just going to stand, stand up. So we'll go number one. So you've got test one, 
Test 2, Test 3. I think we've seen these, I hope that we've seen them pretty clearly in the book of 1 John. And we're saying they're tied together. I need someone to read for me. Come on, Tom. Well, let's get the Castle Dines doing it together here. Uh, I've got a mic over here for you, Tom. And what you can do is stand over here to the side. And this is 1 John 5, and just the first five verses. You're going to slowly read those in a moment while I chain these guys together. I don't have a chain. I'll use a rope. But what I want to see is how they're connected. Um, and you don't have to be here for the entire sermon if you can undo my knots. Alright, so Tom, just slowly read through the passage for me and we'll see how these guys connect. I'm going to try a lasso. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. Oh, carrying out commandments, test one. This is... Love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome for every, everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, well done. And we've managed to tie all the castle lines together, so that's brilliant. Thanks, Tom. You can take a seat, but these guys are trapped here for a minute. Um, What I want us to see is that these three tests are not independent. They're actually connected together. We saw it really clearly in those five verses, I think. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If we confess Jesus, come in the flesh, fully divine, the one who rescues us from sin by his death and resurrection, of course, we'll understand his immense love for us. We will love each other. How can we accept the love of God for us and not do the same for his family? Makes sense. And of course, if we love God, we've understood the truth concerning God, we'll want to live his way. And his rules in the passage said they weren't irksome or burdensome because he has our best interests at heart. So it's not hard to want to live for God when we understand how much he loves us and his way is best for us. So the three things are connected. I hope they're able to see that visually. I'm a visual person. Thanks, guys. We'll let you sit down. But what I want you to do is just try and untangle yourselves nicely there. <laughs> well done. <laughs> you can just leave the dump the rope. That's fine. All right. Well done. Thank you, Castle Lions. Appreciate your volunteering today. Um, so those who have been wrapped up in a rope. No, those who have confessed Christ, the true Christ as Lord, or understood who he is, who love one another and who obey him, they have overcome the world, says the passage. The bit that Tom read for us said three times, overcome the world. They've overcome the world. Three tests. Why? What is the world that they overcome? Because this word world comes up in 1 John a lot. So let's just... Kind of say, what is the world? What does it mean we've overcome the world? Well, the world equals uh, the lies of the Antichrist. We see that in chapter 4, verse 4. The world equals those who hate the righteousness of God and his children. There's opposition to God, and we see that in chapter 3, 12, 15. The world also equals that fleeting false pleasures of the world. In chapter 2, we see that the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
So that is what we have overcome. How have we done it? Born of God, children of God, confessing Jesus rightly, loving him and each other correctly, living out the righteousness of God because that's who we are. That package means we have overcome the world, not because of who we are or our inherent goodness, but because of who God has made us, his children, uh, overcome the world, Christ living in us and us in him. I, I want us to really feel today the assurance that we have as his children who confess him rightly can know that we are saved. John 4, 4, 1 John 4, 4, dear children, you are from God and you have overcome them because... The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We are overcomers. It's a present reality. Not that we never struggle with the sins or the temptations of the world, but that Christ has forgiven us, adopted us, made us new in him. He he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We're never going to be facing a temptation or a sin that we are unable to overcome because Christ has overcome it and is living in us. Who lives in us? Who has overcome the world? None other than Jesus, the Son of God in 5.5. Okay, so the next section in chapter 5 is written to give us great confidence in the testimony concerning the Son. Testimony confirmed by three witnesses. Um... The kind of legal language, and it reminds me of when I was called up for jury duty. Has anyone ever had that letter, jury duty time? A few of us have. Yeah, you kind of get it and go, there's a month of my life. I need to get, I need to get. At that time, I had little George. I need babysitting. We had to get in-laws coming from interstate. We managed it. But it was like, okay. The thing that stuck me, uh, struck me about jury duty was one particular case. I'll spare you the details, but... The defendant's lawyer went to great lengths to undermine the testimony of the witnesses that were uh, that were in the room. So um, the defendant lawyer went quite successfully, I think, to show with photos of empty bottles of booze on the coffee table and the egg cups that they'd been drinking the alcohol from, and to show that actually everyone there was drunk. So how can there be a reliable witness? In fact, they showed that the person who was closest to the scene of the crime was asleep on the couch the whole time. So it really undermined it, even the, uh, to go into their backgrounds and show the delinquency of their youth, and it was a, um, a fairly thorough job of undermining the testimony. Yet, in a human court of law, we accept testimony of humans to establish whether there's um, reasonable guilt here or not. Testimony is used in 1 John 5, as a way of saying, how can we trust, you trust the testimony of humans, how much more should you trust the testimony of God and the testimony of uh, the historical realities? So what is the testimony concerning Christ? Uh, Verse 6 of chapter 5, it begins. This section, I think, is tricky. Most commentators say it's probably the hardest bit to try and work out in 1 John. Let's read it and see if we can't make some sense of it. So this is 1 John 5, verse 6 to 9. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Christ, it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For the three are that te- for there are three that testify: the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. 
We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given us about the Son. So the intention is clear. It's have a confident testimony and testimony of God about the Son. But what's the water and the blood? It's not obviously clear. Maybe it's um, these are arguments or ideas that would have been familiar with the readers, but not so much us. Water and blood. Let me give you a quick, quick rundown of what it could be. The water and the blood could be talking about the sacraments of baptism and communion, although it's a little unclear about how he came by them. Or it could be that the water and the blood is the, the water and blood that gushed out of Jesus' side when he was struck by a spear and his crucifixion. Okay, again, that's not a bad testimony to Jesus of who he was in his flesh, but it's a little bit unclear about how he might have come by them, I think. I reckon the best answer of water and blood, and I'm um, happy to be wrong on this one, but the, I think what John Stott says is pretty good, that the water represents Jesus in that moment of his baptism, and the blood represents Jesus in his death. Um, so Jesus in his baptism is declared by the voice of God, the testimony of God, to be the Son of God, and he's commissioned for his work at that baptism moment. And at his death, well, his work is complete. It is finished. It's not really super clear in the text, but I think why, the way that John does this is to kind of argue in opposition to the false teachers who were suggesting that somehow Christ wasn't fully divine or human, uh, and he's bringing it together. So I think John's saying, um, actually, Jesus, the Son of God, who was, who came by or through the water of baptism, and by or through the pain or the blood of death, is Christ. He was fully divine at the moment of baptism already. He didn't suddenly get the Christness planted in him. And he was fully divine at his death, the Son of God. And uh, there's not some kind of mystery about who he was. He is divine from birth to death and evermore the Christ. You can't separate Jesus from the Christ. Now, I know this has probably been a little bit confusing, but the point of the passage is, regardless of how we understand it, trust the testimony concerning Christ historically uh, and the testimony of the Spirit confirm Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. And the Spirit testifies it as well. So the Spirit's testimony is often, the Spirit's job is to testify to the truth, to convict us of truth. But I remember the particular testimony of the Spirit that we saw in chapter 4, verse 2. This is how we recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So if we accept human testimony in a trial, how much more should we accept the testimony of God which is greater? Okay, I hope I haven't lost anyone. If I did lose you, come back. Uh, I want to contextualize it a little bit. Uh, why is it significant here and does it have anything to do with us now? So John's writing to refute the false teachers who would separate Christ and Jesus, divinity and humanity of God, of Jesus. I haven't heard this particular erroneous view proclaimed recently, but what I have heard a lot is people who would say, Jesus was a good man, but not God. Okay, So I have a friend who, um, who holds this. He says, look, I can accept that uh, Jesus was a great teacher. In fact, I want to hold Jesus up as a great teacher. He had some great things to say. 
uh, but I can't accept that Jesus was God or that he rose from the dead. I think this is a common place for unbelievers to, to land. Uh, the problem is that it is false. And one John would push us to say, not only is it just that you're misunderstanding Jesus, actually behind this false view of Jesus is, a, is the Antichrist. It is a view that is opposed to God. Uh, now, unbelievers, of course, want to pray for them that that view would transform as God works in their heart, that they would see Jesus for who he is as they look at Scripture and the Spirit works in them. All right. Let's get it right. Who are the children of God? Test three, those who accept the true testimony concerning Christ. Who are the children of God? Those who accept the true testimony concerning Christ, not a uh, a, a false view of Jesus. In fact, to, to follow a false view of Jesus is idolatry. The last verse of, of the book of 1 John says, and children, stay away from idols. It seems to come out of nowhere, but I think what John's doing is saying, to worship a false view of Jesus, one that doesn't acknowledge his humanity and divinity, is in fact idolatry. You're no longer following Jesus, you're following made-up idol that you call Jesus because you've lost the truth. You haven't confessed the truth about who he is. So test three, follow the true Jesus. Confess the true Jesus. And this is the testimony, John 5.11, 1 John 5.11. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Eternal life is a gift. It's only found in Christ. And those who accept the Son have life now. It's a present possession. Why does John write all these things? 1 John 5.13, I write these things so that you, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The Gospel of John was written to unbelievers that they might believe. So that's John twenty thirty one. The letter of 1 John is written to believers that they might know that they have eternal life. Do you, do you believe in the Son? Do you seek to live for Him? You can know that you are saved. You have eternal life. I think Christians sometimes tie themselves up in knots a bit when it comes to the question of their salvation assurance. Uh, so they would say, like, are you saved? I go, well, I hope so. I, I hope that when God looks at me, he'll see that I've done more good than bad. I, you know, I think I'm a good person. No, if you ask the question, are you going to heaven? Answer, yes, I'm going to heaven. My salvation starts and ends in Christ. It's a gift from him, and by his spirit, I correctly confess that Jesus is God. He is the living son of God, whom, because he loves me, has called me his child. It's a present reality. It's not prideful or presumptuous to confess the truth. I think it kind of counters a little bit some of the, we think we're being humble by saying, oh, I hope, hope I'm going to heaven, I hope I'll be good enough. Uh, actually, just confess the truth, hold on to it, uh, and, and actually empowers us to live for him. So we can have great confidence that we will stand before God at his coming. 
We can have confidence before God at His return. We saw that in chapter 2, 28. And we can have confidence before God in prayer. Chapter 5, 14, which we're looking at now. So when we pray according to His will, He hears us. That was the promise we had in the passage today. When we pray according to His will, He hears us. Prayer is a great way to demonstrate our trust in Him, isn't it? It's not a way for us to impose our desires or wants on God. It's not we don't pose our will on God, but we pray according to His will. Just like in the Lord's Prayer, uh, we pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we can pray with confidence before God that His kingdom be built, not ours. That His will be done and that His will would align with our uh, our own will. So what sort of things do we pray for? A good thing to pray for is what was um, what John says in cha- in chapter five sixteen. He says we should pray. Uh, if you see a brother and sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. We should pray for those living in sin that God would save them. Pray for your unbelieving neighbours that they will be saved. It's a bit of a, a tricky bit, so let's again this without getting bogged down here. What is going on in this passage about prayer? Uh, let's have a look at it. So this is 1 John 5, I'll read out 16 and 17. If you see a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray that God would give them life. I think he's talking about unbelievers, because if you're talking about believers, haven't they already received life? So pray for your neighbours, brothers and sisters, that they would be given life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Okay, this confronts us a little bit. It's a bit tricky. What is what is going on? What is the sin that leads to death? Um, it's a couple of possibilities. I'm not going to outline them all, but I think the best one is that it's talking here about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So we see this as an unforgivable sin that's listed in uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. Where the Pharisees, you might remember, the Pharisees accused Jesus and said, Oh, he's only casting out demons by the prince of demons. And what Jesus says is that actually, at that point, you are saying that the Holy Spirit is an evil spirit. And that's the blasphemy of the Holy of the Spirit. So, why is John bringing up sin that leads to death here? With tricky bits, I think always context helps. Uh, and we've got to remember the context of one John. John's been writing to counter false teachers. Remember how starkly he has labelled them? These are antichrists. These are children of the devil. They are those who love darkness, who walk in darkness, who stumble. This is what he says about them in 1 John two twenty-two. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who, de- who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. I think John is saying, don't bother praying for the Antichrist who are already embraced death. These are the ones who promote a false Jesus. They're actually worshipping a false god, an idol at this point, rather than calling, correctly identifying Jesus as the Christ. Okay. Again, it's tricky and it's okay if we don't get every nuance here, but I think that's what's going on. These are the people who are saying that the Spirit of God is actually an evil spirit. They're falsely 
professing a false Christ. All right, we get to the last section here and the last part of 1 John uh, and it's the we know section. There are three we knows and I've labeled the sermon, titled the sermon, we know, we know, we know. I think this is a great way, a fitting end to a book about assurance of salvation. Uh, the three we knows are three punches that should knock us in the guts and bowl us over with a strong conviction that we have life in Jesus' name. The three punches could be characterized as identity, security, and truth. Let me read for you the last little section of 1 John 5, 18 to 20. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come to give us understanding so that we may know who him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Identity. We know our identity. Who are we? We're the children of God. Shouldn't that give us great assurance? Those born of God. No longer under the control of sin and the world, but free to worship God, loved, precious, belonging to his family, to identity. Security, we know we are secure. Who is protecting us? The one who was born of God keeps us safe. The NIV Bible gives us a capital O for one, correctly identifying. This is Jesus that was talking about. In the face of sin temptation of evil in the world, Jesus keeps us safe. His spirit lives in us. The evil one cannot harm us. So identity, security and truth. We know the truth. Not only does the Son of God give us life, but we see in that passage he also gives us understanding, correct understanding by the spirit to profess the correct true Jesus. In the face of false teachers and antichrists, We have the Son of God and the Spirit of God confirming the truth of God in our hearts. We are in Him. He is the true God and eternal life. So believers, have great assurance in your salvation. We have an eternal identity, absolute security and living truth. That's the book of 1 John. I will not have done my job if you don't come away of reading John thinking, yes, I can be confident. I confess the true Jesus. I have life everlasting in his name, assurance of salvation. I'm going to pray that God would take what we've heard and transform and implant it in our hearts so that we can have great confidence that we are his kids. Let's pray. Our gracious God, uh, would you love us and call us your own. And in Jesus, we belong safely, securely in your family, your children, loved by you, protected. Help us, Father, to in, throughout our lives, confess Jesus truly and live our lives in response to that with righteousness and love. Amen.